to see uh, what the Lord's will is there, but it's been going well. The church is uh, rather settled, and we've been going through uh, Paul's letters to the Philippians at the moment, and uh, particularly this section of Philippians deals with the advance of the gospel. You'll notice from the, uh, the uh, heading from the ESV Bible, or the progress of the gospel is a synonym, and it's bracketed in between verse 12 and verse 26, where he says in verse 12, I want you to know that this has, uh, what, what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. You'll notice in verse 20, uh, 25, he says that he's convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy and faith. That would be faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's really a section dealing with uh, an update of Paul's circumstances. And really the common theme here is the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul ultimately says here is that uh, his circumstances have turned out for the advancement of the gospel. He's convinced that he will soon be with them for the sake of their progress in faith. But whether or not he comes to them or not, he hopes that Christ will be honored through his life or through his death. So that's really how the whole section uh, fits together. I'd like to read it with you before we begin, though. And this is what God's Word says to us in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And this is the word of God for us this afternoon. And I'm sure sooner or later I'm going to say this morning or this evening, just go with it. 
Um, But I I chose this text this afternoon in part because it's the most recent sermon that I've delivered, so it's the most easiest one to pull up. But I've actually uh, uh, chosen it for another reason, because this upcoming week we have Vacation Bible School here. And this is uh, an activity in which it's going to involve quite a lot of us getting involved in order to pull this off. It's not one individual who's doing everything, but it's a collection of all of us coming together in order to uh, serve this particular ministry. And so there's a sort of fellowship or partnership that's taking place here. And one of the things that's interesting when you read the, uh, the letters of Paul, sometimes at the end of Paul's letters, you think of Romans 16 or Colossians 4 or 1 Corinthians 16. You end up with these lists sometimes. I actually had to preach through one of these lists recently in Colossians 4. I know you guys have gone through Romans 16 recently. And one of the interesting things about these list of names when you consider them is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, we often so times think about him in such uh, fantastical ways because of his gifting and the way that the Lord Jesus Christ used him throughout his ministry. But Paul actually wasn't a one-man show. But oftentimes, he was involved with many other people throughout his ministry. And so you get that at the end of his, uh, of his letters, you get these list of names of this person and that person greets you, or please greet this person and that person. And it's really the, a whole collection of people that have been involved with the Apostle Paul in various ways throughout his ministry. And you see that in the book of Acts too. Soon you'll be approaching the end of Acts of the Apostles, where uh, we have three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And as he goes into these various places, you'll find that he's not going to these places by himself, but he'll have Barnabas with him, or Silas, or Timothy, or Luke. Uh, If you even read the beginning of Acts chapter 20, you get a whole list of names there. You'll remember uh, at one point, Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, and Paul was going around actively trying to collect some uh, funds for the relief in Jerusalem. And at the beginning of Acts 20, you get this big list of names that actually went with Paul down to Jerusalem in order to help carry this collection to them. And so really what I'm saying in all this is when we think of the Christian ministry, we ought not to think of an individual, but we ought to think of a group. We ought to think of a collective of people coming together in order to serve the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come together to serve Jesus Christ together for the Great Commission or as a church here in ministry, uh, what is our aim? What is our ambition behind that? What do we hope to get out of it? What is the underlying heart behind our desire to serve with one another? What do we hope to get out of our participation in ministry? Now, in this section of Philippians, One of the things we notice is Paul is giving an update because he's presently in prison in Rome. If you read the tail end of the book of Acts, you can actually read about that imprisonment. Acts chapter 28 in in particular, Paul is under house arrest at this time. And he's under house arrest because there were those who tried to oppose the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by getting Paul in trouble. And yet what we see in this section is that this did anything but hinder the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And even with the evil motives, they they try to suppress God's word, Paul's opponents, but they do not prevent its spread because God is so completely sovereign and so completely powerful that he's even able to use the evil intentions of those coming against Paul, and he's able to use it for good. And so we read at the beginning of verse number 12 that Paul's circumstances, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel, the very opposite of any type of hindrance at all. And Paul's imprisonment has resulted in in the gospel we see in verse 13, the gospel penetrating into the very imperial guard of Caesar himself. And Paul is now the talk of the town. Everybody else on the street is talking about Paul or talking about his ministry or talking about his message. And because of Paul's courageous example uh, through his ministry in prison, We even see in verse 14 that this has provoked the majority of the other Christians in Rome. You'll notice verse 14 that most of the brothers or the majority of the brothers, having been confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so this is really incredible. And it ought to encourage us that no matter the circumstances, no matter how frightening the storm clouds or the size of the waves that God is able to overcome any and all circumstances in our lives and use it for the furtherance or the advancement or the progress of the gospel message because he is ultimately sovereign over each and every situation or circumstance that would come about. We even heard a little bit about that this morning. And so we too must speak the word without fear, knowing that in every situation in my life that God remains on the throne, and this indeed is a cause to rejoice, that no matter the obstacles, Christ is proclaimed, and that is always a reason to rejoice. Now, however, Paul's joy would be challenged once he begins to take stock of exactly who is numbered amongst the majority of these Christians mentioned in verse number 14. But as he begins to take stock of this, I want us to take notice in this passage this afternoon, where exactly does Paul find his joy, and what exactly is Paul's aim? As the gospel continues to advance by the providence of God, where does Paul place his joy And what exactly is Paul's aim as he continues to participate in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And so I want you to consider that with me firstly this afternoon, the joy of gospel advancement. We see this in verses 15 to 18. And Paul's joy is fairly plainly stated right at the end end of the first paragraph in verse 18. You'll notice he says there that Christ is proclaimed... And in that, I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. That's Paul's joy in the midst of gospel advancement. However, I want you to notice that at the outset of Paul's joy, uh, his joy will be challenged in verses 15 to 17. So in verse 14, we learn that most of the brothers are now emboldened to preach upon hearing of Paul's imprisonment. But you'll notice in verse 15 that not everyone is preaching Christ for the same reasons. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And it will be particularly the former group that will challenge Paul's joy as he continues uh, going about in the pursuit of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These those uh, who are preaching from envy and rivalry. Now, it's important for us to note that these two groups mentioned in these verses, they're not 
false teachers. They're not heretics. They're not preaching a false gospel. But you'll notice in verse 15 that they indeed preach Christ. Now, some for good reasons and some for bad reasons, but whatever the reasons that they have, they indeed preach Christ. These are not false teachers. In fact, you'll notice that Paul has some choice words for false teachers in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. If you notice chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul says quite sharply there, look out for the dogs. In other words, look out for the miscreants. Suffice it to say that this is not a compliment. So Paul is not afraid to warn against false teachers. Paul's not afraid to even rebuke false teachers or to call them out. But here we see that we do not have a rebuke of false teachers, but rather Paul is identifying those who are genuinely preaching Christ, the only exception being for different reasons. One such group we see identified in verse 15. They are those whom Paul says preach Christ from envy and rivalry. The word envy just simply means jealous. It speaks of displeasure, of seeing or hearing about the advantage or the success of somebody else. Somebody else gets the promotion. Somebody else gets asked to serve. Somebody else gets asked to teach. Somebody else gets asked to sing. Somebody else gets asked to do something, and rather than being content with where you are, you're quite taken about by where they are. You see, envy is wishing that others do not have what they have, and it's wishing that you had it instead. But more than that, envy here wishes to proactively deprive that person of what they have in order that you might get it. And there were those who were envious of Paul for either his giftedness or for his ministry success or influence. Here they were caring about a ministry of their own in the city of Rome, and all of a sudden the apostle Paul comes there, and all anyone can talk about is the message that Paul preaches or the success of Paul's ministry. Never mind that we've been here the whole time. Apparently it's all about him now. And when this sort of envy, when this sort of jealousy takes hold of the hearts and minds of those within Christian ministry, verse 15 says that rivalry begins to take hold of them. In other words, proclaiming Christ becomes a means to an end in order to deprive someone else of what they have and to claim it for yourself, and you're almost stepping over one another in order to get it. And this word rivalry, it refers to strife, it refers to quarreling, it has this idea of being competitive. It is that from which factions and divisions are made because it forces people to make a choice. Are you going to choose them or are you going to choose me? Are you on their side or are you on my side? Are you going to stand with Paul or are you going to stand with me? Are you on Paul's team or are you on my team? And this sort of rivalry is always, every time, always devastating for the spiritual health of a church. Those filled with rivalry are often gossips who will attack the reputations of those around them in order to take them down a notch. 
No doubt this group here in Rome was throwing plenty of shade on Paul for being in prison in the first place. Listen, if Paul were, were truly walking with the Lord, why would God allow him to be in prison? God is surely punishing him. And you know, it's amazing how gullible people can be sometimes when it comes to gossip. It's amazing how easily people can be swayed towards this view or that view by people who simply hate to see someone else succeed. Ultimately, the true motives of Paul's rivals become clear in verse 17. Verse 17, they proclaim Christ, they preach Christ, but only out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. That's telling. Not sincerely. Notice with me that this is the second mention in this paragraph that Paul mentions the preaching or the proclamation of Christ, same word. The first is mentioned in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ. The second in verse 17, the former proclaim Christ. And in verse 18, we see the third Christ is proclaimed. There's a bone-chilling emphasis that's here. This ought to both alarm and awaken us that there are those within the Christian ministry that can actually be orthodox in the substance of what they proclaim and yet utterly corrupt in their hearts as they do so. Verse 17 mentions the former. That would be the former mentioned in verse 15. So verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. Matthew Henry remarks that it is sad that there should be men who profess the gospel, especially those who preach it, who are governed by such principles as these. Now, I want you to notice that in verse 15 that this does not account for everyone. Yes, most of the brothers have been more emboldened to speak without fear. Some, verse 15, indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but notice others from goodwill. And if envy and rivalry is is, uh, focused and directed towards Paul, then the goodwill is also focused against Paul here, and how pleasant and how wonderful it is to see in verse 16 that they're motivated out of love. Because you see, they know why Paul is in prison. Verse 16, they know that I am put in here for the defense of the gospel. And though Paul had so greatly desired to come to Rome so that he might proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he can't quite do it in the manner that he had originally intended. He's imprisoned. He can't just roam around freely. But these others step in on account of goodwill and they're motivated by love and they say in effect, don't worry, Paul, we've got your back. We're here to help. Yet it seems that there are those within every church that while perhaps genuinely preaching Christ, do so for the sake of promoting individuals over and above everything else. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition and not sincerely. 
These often are those who are primarily preoccupied with talking about themselves. Primarily occupied by what they think they deserve. Primarily preoccupied by becoming sour and bitter when they perceive others are not giving them enough recognition for what they do. They're not primarily preaching Christ for the sake of advancing the gospel, but for the sake of advancing themselves. And that's what the expression selfish ambition means. It's self-seeking. It's self-promoting. And what a contradiction in terms to proclaim Christ and at the same time to be self-seeking and self-promoting. And notice how far they're willing to take their promotion at the end of verse 17. You see, they're not only seeking to elevate themselves, to make much of themselves, but there's the other side of the coin. Verse 17, they think to afflict Paul in his imprisonment as they do. Well, what does Paul think about all this? Here are these Christians in Rome, and some preach on account of goodwill. They love Paul. They appreciate Paul. They recognize how marvelously God is actively using Paul for the advancement of the gospel. They recognize that Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel because he has so valiantly stood up for the gospel. They recognize Paul's contribution to the advancement of the gospel. And it's very wonderful to be appreciated, it's very encouraging. But then there are those who could care less. They just want to afflict Paul and to cause him harm and distress and to gossip about him and slander him and to ignore all of the effort and the hard work and the struggle that he's put into it. They don't want to give Paul any recognition at all. They don't want to encourage him. They don't want to come alongside of him. They don't want to love him. How does Paul process this? Well, Paul, what he thinks about this, you'll notice in verse 18, he says, in effect, what of it? What does it matter? Or as the ESV puts it, what then? Only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, that is, whether from false motives or from true motives, whether they recognize my contributions or they don't, whether they love me or they just want to afflict me, it all boils down to this, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Beloved, that is the joy of gospel advancement as Paul sees it. It's not found in my own recognition. It's not found in my own promotion. It's not found in the proclamation of myself, but in the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't misunderstand Paul. He's not excusing those who would be selfishly ambitious. He's not saying their selfish ambitiousness doesn't matter. He's not saying, well, you know, whatever, they preach Christ, fine. He's not doing that. You'll see in chapter 2, verse 3, that Paul would say to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing. 
And throughout the rest of chapter 2, he would give multiple examples of those who are not acting by selfish ambition, but acting for the sake of something greater than that. The most striking example is of the Lord Jesus Christ who shared perfect equality with the Father and the Spirit and yet did not count his own equality as something to be grasped. And also that he might make himself of no reputation and go to the cross to make a relationship with Jesus Christ even possible in the first place. Listen, Paul is not excusing those who would be selfishly ambitious, but rather he's exemplifying the opposite. He's not saying, how dare you not recognize my contributions and achievements, but rather he's saying, I can live with being overlooked. I can live with being attacked. I can live with being afflicted. I can even live with being hated so long as Christ is proclaimed. I will rejoice. Beloved, in what have you placed your joy in this afternoon? as you seek to contribute to the ministry here, and everyone in, uh, every Christian here, every church member here has been granted giftings by the Holy Spirit to be used for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian ministry is never a one-man show. But as you seek to use your gifts to contribute to the ministry here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, are you primarily motivated by gaining recognition? Are you primarily motivated by self-promotion? Are you primarily motivated by people knowing your name because of what you've done here? Are you bothered to see someone else in the church elevated? Or is it your primary concern that Christ would be proclaimed? Beloved, like the Apostle Paul, our joy in the midst of gospel advancement ought to be first and foremost that Christ would be proclaimed. In that, we ought to rejoice. And with that, I'd like you to consider with me secondly this afternoon the aim of gospel advancement. If that is the joy of gospel advancement, then what is the aim of gospel advancement. Well, in verses 15 to 17, we see the aim, the motivation standing behind the brothers in Rome as they proclaim Christ, some out of love, others out of selfish ambition. But what is Paul's aim? What is Paul's motivation in the advancing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's begin with what Paul knows. Paul concludes verse 18. You'll notice a new paragraph. He concludes at verse 18 by re-emphasizing, yes, and I will rejoice. And he explains the reason why in verse 19, and the reason why is because of what Paul knows. Verse 19, for I know. In other words, I'm certain, I'm sure of this. And what is both certain and sure can be seen at the end of verse 19 that this, meaning his imprisonment, his present circumstance, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul presently sits in prison awaiting a trial before Caesar himself and he says, I rejoice for I know that I will be delivered. Yes, I may be released, I may even be executed, but either way, I will 
be delivered. So he's convinced of something. He's convinced, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance, that my imprisonment and coming trial is going to result in something, it's going to produce something, and what it's going to produce is my deliverance. Now, it's important to understand that word deliverance there. It's the same word which we often uh, translate salvation. And you see, it's the usual word which we use for salvation there. But Paul's not saying, I know I'm going to be acquitted. He's not saying, I know that I'm going to be released. I know that I'm going to be declared innocent. Because he's going to go on to say that this deliverance at the end of verse 20, this deliverance might take my life. No, what he's concerned, convinced of, rather, is two things primarily. Certainly, he's convinced of his own salvation, his own acceptance before God. Live or die, I will stand before God secure. That's huge. He knows that the work begun in him by God will be completed. That gives him courage. Certainly, he's convinced of this. But more specifically here, it's, it's rather more than just simply that. He's convinced of something else here. He's convinced that ultimately his aim and his goal will be obtained. You'll notice that phrase at the end of verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. You'll notice that it ends with a comma. So it's not the end of the sentence yet. And so if we want to know what Paul means by my deliverance, then we have to keep reading So what does he mean? He says, this will turn out for my deliverance, comma, as it is my eager expectation and hope. And so his deliverance is on account of his eager expectation. It's on account of what he's hoping in. And you know what's interesting is that Paul being in prison in the first place, he really didn't need to be. And really the only reason why he's in Rome in the first place, if you read at the end of Acts, you probably remember, is because he appealed to Caesar. That's why he's there. And as a prisoner of Rome, Paul has a goal, Paul has an aim, Paul has an objective, an ambition for being there in the first place that he hopes to achieve. And Paul expects that through the prayers of the Philippians and the enabling help of the Holy Spirit, that his goal, his aim, his eager expectation, his hope will come about. And so we need to ask, in order to know what deliverance looks like for Paul, we have to ask, what is his goal? What is his aim? What is important to Paul in this scene? And it's very simply this. Paul's aim is an ambition for the honor of Christ. Paul's aim is an ambition for the honor of Christ. You'll notice verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see the ambition that's motivating him, don't you? That's strengthening him. His ambition is an unwavering commitment, an unwavering commitment to Christ's glory and honor in all of the circumstances of his life. That through his life, Christ's renown and fame and glory would increase and expand and intensify. 
That was Paul's singular passion. That was Paul's consuming ambition. May Christ be honored in my life whether I live or whether I die. Either way, may Christ be honored. When I stand before the imperial court, whether before Caesar himself or whether before a legal representative, when I stand before that court, may my testimony reveal and display Christ's glory. Oh, I want to come strong before that court, and then if they let me go, may Christ be honored. And if they execute me, may Christ be honored in every circumstance of my life. May Christ be honored in and through and by it. I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if that sounds intense. I wonder if that, how you process that. Is that your ambitious? Is that, is that what gets you up in the morning? Is that what compels you throughout the day? Christ honor. Is that the foremost consideration of your motivations? Is that the foremost factor in your decision-making? Is that the number one consideration of all your priorities? And the Greek word standing behind the word honor here is interesting. It's the word to magnify. It's the word to enlarge. It's the word to make much of. You see, Paul's not concerned with whether or not anyone acknowledges him. Paul's not concerned with whether or not anyone recognizes his contributions. Paul's not concerned with whether or not he is promoted so long as Christ is promoted, so long as Christ is exalted, so long as Christ is glorified, so long as Christ is magnified. I don't care if I live. I don't care if I die. So long as Christ is made much of. And I want you to notice that there are two sides to Paul's ambition here. There's a positive side and there's a negative side. You'll look again at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see his eager expectation. On the one hand is that I won't be ashamed, and on the other hand, that Christ would be honored, that Christ would be magnified. And you see how those two fit together, don't you? If Christ is honored, then I am not ashamed. But if Christ is not honored, then I am very ashamed. If through my life, if through what I do, if through how I respond to circumstances, if Christ is not displayed as praiseworthy, then I am disgraced. Deliver me from that. Deliver me from that disgrace. It's amazing how that can change the perspective of how we pursue here, things here together as a church. It's not about me. It's not about you. But it's about him. It's about pointing and shining a light on Him. I love at my church back home in Kingston, we have a sign out front that says, we preach Christ, and that's wonderful, so that everyone who comes into the church knows what we're about. We're not about preaching me, and we're not about preaching you, but we're about preaching Christ. And for Paul, his shame, his disgrace is completely determined on whether or not Christ is magnified. 
This is a radically God-centered perspective on his life. The only disgrace Paul fears, the only shame Paul fears, the only downside for Paul is disgrace in the eyes of God. Oh Lord, deliver me from that. Oh, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, I might be delivered from that. I might be delivered from the disgrace of unfaithfulness or the disgrace of unbelief or the disgrace of disobedience. That's all Paul cares about here. And his positive ambition is utterly Godward, completely vertical, start to finish. Paul evaluated his life by one standard. He measured everything, his goals, his activities, his priorities by one ambition. Does it magnify Christ? Is his reputation enhanced or is his purposes advanced? What are we motivated by here this afternoon? Do we want to promote me? Do we want to promote you? Am I motivated in participating in ministry at BBS here this next week or at Emmanuel Baptist Church on an ongoing basis? Am I motivated to participate in that for what I can get out of it? Or am I motivated in participating because it shines a light on the Lord Jesus Christ? I love what hymn writer Mac Lynch writes here. He writes, Living or dying, may honor be thine. From this wretched life you loved and forgave. A life that is on fire be only our heart's desire. And the admonition to one another, be faithful from now to the grave. May the Lord find us faithful. May his word be our banner held high. May the Lord find us faithful every day, though we live, though we die. May we be a people absolutely obsessed with the magnification of Christ. And may Christ be magnified by all that we do in this church. God help us for Christ's sake. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer this afternoon, that living or dying, that you would be honored, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified and exalted and made much of, Lord, we do confess that we so often fall short on this. We so often find ourselves identifying with those in verse 17 who are just motivated by selfish ambition. We so often do things because we want our names repeated. Lord, forgive us for those times that we fall short. Forgive us for those times that we're tempted towards pride. Forgive us for doing things with a wrong motive. And help us, equip us, by the help of your spirit and through the prayers of one another, that we would be a people that would be centered on magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, use us to shine like lights amongst this dark and twisted generation and all for the sake of your name. Help us to do so. Help us to do so even this next week as we prepare for VBS that the main theme of this week would be that you would be magnified. Help us as we go forward, that as we continue to pursue ministry together as a church, together, that you would be magnified. Lord, 
That is our goal and our desire this evening. We, help that, we ask that you would help us attain it. For Christ's sake, we ask. Amen.